0: Alright, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 4 through 13 tonight. Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 13. Let me read it to you and then we'll begin to break it down. The Hebrew writer says, uh, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to take this passage and break it down. And remember where we left off. We've been through the Hall of Fame of Faith, of men and women of faith, that the Hebrew writer has been used to, to, to demonstrate to these Christians, Jewish Christians, who were thinking about going back to Judaism because of the persecution they were facing. And then he says to to throw off the things that easily entangle we looked at last week and to set our eyes on Jesus. And, And now what he does here in verse four, though, is look closely what he's saying. He rebukes them, actually, and says, you haven't even yet resisted to the shedding of your blood. In other words... Well, let me read to you again, chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. We see where it talks about how women received their their, their dead back, raised back to life. I'm sorry, verse 30. uh, Let's go with the, uh, yeah, verse 35 and following. Women received back their dead, chapter 10 of Hebrews, raised to life again. Chapter 10, verse 35, women received, sorry, 11. Thank you, thank you, Allison. Chapter 11, I'm I wrote down 10 in my notes. That's what's throwing me off. All right. Women received back their dead and raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. In other words, hey, the Hebrew writer says, Do you remember what I just said to you about these men and women of faith? A lot of them lost their life because of their faith. You guys haven't even resisted to the shedding of your blood. What they had experienced was in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Go back to chapter 10 and look at verses 32 through 34. It says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So when the Hebrew writer here says, you haven't even yet resisted to the shedding of your blood, he's literally saying, you haven't even died yet. Now, that seems kind of harsh. Go ahead. Exactly, exactly. And we're going to get to that in just a second. We're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 2 that talks about that as well. I remember hearing a story years ago about a, a young preacher who uh, went to see this older preacher because the church he was in was treating him badly. And uh, the older preacher said, uh, they treat you bad, huh? And he goes, the pastor says, oh yeah, they treat me really bad. He says, did they hit you? Well, no, they didn't hit me. Have they spit on you? Oh, no, they didn't spit on me. Did they pull your beard? I don't have a beard. Have they nailed you to a cross? And the, guy, and the, the young guy goes, no. And the pastor says, sounds like you're not done. <laughs> you know, we have a tendency to think, man, I've got it so bad. But if we really look at others who have gone before us, and that's what we've been doing as we've been going through chapter 11, They resisted to the shedding of their blood. They were willing to be tortured and put to death because of their faith. We don't like it when things get hard and our faith gets tested. The the Hebrew writers here pointing out that in their struggle against sin, they haven't had to resist to the shedding of their blood. But let's deal with this thing where he says, in your struggle against sin. What does that mean? In your struggle against sin. Well, there's actually two answers to this question. The first one is this. It's referring to the sinners, if you will, who were persecuting them because of their faith in Christ. In other words, ultimately, who is behind our persecution? Satan. Satan. And could we not say that sin is a good description of him? I mean, it represents him. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following talk about how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so when it's talking about in your struggle against sin, you do understand you're in a battle and it's a spiritual battle and it's against sin incarnate, if you will. Although he's not in the flesh, but sometimes he he has people that do that stuff for him. But also there's a temptation to sin by walking away from Christ. And we're going to deal with that more next week as we get into the next section. So we won't focus on that aspect tonight. But the Hebrew writer is saying, in your struggle against sin, you haven't even yet resisted to the shedding of your blood. You have to understand, it is sin to walk away from Christ, and it is sin itself which is actually trying to pull us away from Christ. And when we realize that we're struggling with something, when we realize we're wrestling with something, when we realize we're anxious about something, or fretting about something, or worried, all the things the Bible says we're not to be, you have to understand that sin is crouching at your door, is it not? It's desiring to have mastery over you, and when we let it we let it in, we lose the battle most of the time against sin. And so here he's saying, "Understand what this, where this battle's coming from. It's coming from the enemy who is sin himself, if you will. But look at Philippians chapter two. This is what Allison was talking about. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at just verses 5 through 8, and then we're going to come back to this passage later on. Paul says, Your attitude, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death. Oh, and not just death. Even death on a cross. Don't lose that first part of this passage. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. Did He have every right to defend Himself? Yes. Would He have been in the right, in one sense, to defend Himself? Yes. But he humbled himself and he took the beating, if you will, even to the point of death and the persecution and the rejection and the shame, the nakedness. Why? Because of the Father's plan. When he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, he was living it himself. And so the Hebrew writer is actually rebuking these Christians fairly harshly. Then you guys are complaining about losing your property and going to prison? I don't want to sound cold, but uh, you haven't even yet resisted to the shedding of your blood. We've told you to fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the scorn and the shame, the scorn and, the shame and went to the cross. In other words, you'd think the Hebrew writer would say, I'm sorry it's been so tough. If you just hang on, I think you're going to be alright. I see light at the end of the tunnel. If you just be a little bit longer, things are going to be better in a few days. He doesn't. He says, I can't promise you that it won't get worse. Are you willing to keep going? Now, I want to just show you though, after this rebuke for their faint heartedness, he at the same time now goes into a description of how these hardships are actually from God and that ultimately these trials are and will be for their best. In other words, here's the, here's the real crazy thing. He goes from rebuking them and saying, um, you guys haven't even died yet. What are you fussing about? To saying, this is actually a good thing. This persecution you're going through for your faith is actually a good thing. Can you imagine going to him for counseling? It's like you're coming to see me, by the way. I'll give you a little heads up. Yes, sir, Fred. How do we discern that it's the Lord disciplining us as opposed to it's the devil putting another burden on us? I say they're both the same. Let me, and we're going to see this in just a second. And if those didn't hear Fred, his question was, how do we know if it's difference between the Lord disciplining us or Satan putting another burden on us? I'm going to show you scripturally that God uses Satan to shape us and to mold us and to discipline us. So this attack of Satan is the discipline of God, because if you've heard me teach before, Satan can do nothing to you without your father's permission. Therefore, if your father has said yes to Satan's request to work you over or to sift you as wheat, the father's going to be using it for what? For growth, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So actually, and that's what the Hebrew writer says here, this is a good thing. Put a bookmark here, jump over one book to the book of James, and look at James chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy. Think about that. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, James even says, when you face trials of many different kinds, see it as a good thing. Because God is at work in your life, and He's the one who's using these trials to develop what? It's right there. Perseverance. Keep going in faith. And perseverance produces what? Character. Character. And then what? Hope or confidence. And so in other words... When we typically respond, well, I'm going to ask you, how do we typically respond to trials? Yeah, huh? Complain, we whine. What did I do? We lose heart. Blame, we run, we point. Not my fault. Not my fault. <laughs> Here, I want you to see, and this is what we're going to spend some time on tonight, because I don't want to gloss over this, because this is an aspect of life, not just Christianity, but especially Christian life, that most Christians don't understand. And if you would really understand the heart of your Father, when anything comes across your plate, whether it be good or bad you will be able to recognize His hand, and you'll know how to properly respond. But if you don't understand the heart of your Father, if you don't understand who He really is, you will misunderstand what's going on and what He's doing. You'll interpret what's going on incorrectly, and you'll respond incorrectly. Let me give you a quick example of where we're headed. We remember the story in Acts chapter 16. Paul is preaching in uh, uh, Philippi, and there's this girl with the demon that's in her, and she's prophesying that these men are from the Most High God, telling you the way to be saved. And after a few days, Paul's so troubled, he just turns to the demon and says, Come out. Now the girl is not able to make any money for her owners who are using her because she could predict the future. They grab him and take him into the center of town. He and Silas are severely beaten. They're thrown into the inner cell and they're put in the, the most inner cell in the stocks. And at midnight, they're praising God. I mean, they're bloody, beaten. And why are they praising God? Because they understood this, that they were children of God, and everything that comes to them from their father's hand is for their best, and will be used for His glory and His purposes, even though we don't understand what He's doing. So right now, let's just praise Him, because He's doing something, Something's going on right now, and I know the heart of my Father. It's for my best or for His glory, and either one's good with me. And they praised Him. Of course, we know the rest of the story. The jailer and the rest of the people in the jail most likely come to faith because of that. And then God, of course, throws the chains off and knocks the walls down, if you will, and the doors fly open to the prison. But at the time, they didn't know that. But why did they sing praises? Because they knew... Our Father's at work, and He's doing something, and everything He does is for my best. Romans twenty-eight, twenty-eight. We know that what? All things work together together for good for who? Those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All right, what things? All things work together. All things. NAS says, "For we know that God causes all things." Exactly. Well, ultimately. He's sovereignly in control of all things. And you know what? Let's just be honest. And I'm getting a little off my study here, but it's okay. Some things bad happen to us because we make stupid choices. But you know, our Father can even take that and use them for growth. He is always orchestrating what is His purpose? To conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's predestined to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. If He was just going to save us and take us to heaven, the moment you said, Lord save me, you'd disappear. But He leaves us here because we're still in the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And the sooner we believe that and let Him the sooner we'll respond appropriately to trials. Oh, and by the way, I know I look across this room. I guarantee you, every one of you have them. Me too. But that's a part of life and it's good. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying. He said, first of all, you haven't even resisted to the shedding of your blood. And second of all, this is good. This is good. Look at how he words it. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement. Verse 5. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines who? Those He loves. And I'm going to deal with this word punished. I think it's a horrible translation. But the NIV says, And He punishes everyone He accepts as His Son. Now, let me just say, say it to you this way. The Lord is the one who orchestrates what goes on in our lives. He ultimately is in control. And He uses trials and struggles to shape us or to discipline us. Um, I'll get back to this word punish in a second. But let's go back to what James said. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face what? Trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your what? Faith produces all this good stuff. Did Jesus have His faith tested? That sounds like a weird question, doesn't it? Yes, he did. Go with me real quickly. Keep a bookmark here in Hebrews 12. Go to Matthew chapter 4. And you're going to see something that you might not have ever seen before that may surprise you. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by who? The Spirit. That's a capital S, isn't it? Then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted or tested by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him on to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It's also written, Don't put your Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and an angel came and attended him. This testing in the wilderness, tempting by the devil, but testing by God, was orchestrated by who? By God. God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. Now we're going to see this is important. We'll come back to this a little bit more a little bit later on. Oh, but don't think that that's the only time he was tested. Let me read you the very end of Luke's account. In Luke chapter 4, verse 13, at the end of Luke's account of Jesus' testing, he adds a one interesting little tidbit. In Luke chapter 4, verse 13, this is what it says. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So I'm going to ask you a question. When you face trials or tempting or testing of your faith, whether or not you're going to stay following God or follow God's word or obey His word versus your will or whatever, who is ultimately in control of that test? God is. Folks, that's important. See, because a lot of times when we are facing a test, which is usually a temptation of some sort, to walk away or to deny God or to not obey His word or not, you know, to follow the flesh instead of His Spirit or, com- or His commands, we think Satan's out to get us, and we wonder if God even knows. Ever feel like you're fighting him on your own? Remember again what I quoted to you before in 1 Corinthians 10:13. There is no temptation which is seized you, but such is common to man. Don't think what you're going through, you're the only one that is. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. He's controlling the level of how much Satan can tempt you. And with that, with the temptation, he'll provide a way to escape. Why does it sound like God is intricately involved in my temptation? Because He is. Now remember James chapter 1, verse 13. It says, God tempts no one. But God allows Satan to do his work, if you will, in that area. And Satan is the one who does the tempting. God doesn't. But God orchestrates it. That's why I think back to something you might not have ever understood. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, we're taught as a part of the Lord's Prayer or the model for prayer, lead us not into temptation. Correct? Who are we praying to? I mean, doesn't it start, our Father who art in heaven... Don't lead me into temptation. Why are we asking God not to lead us into temptation? Because He's the one who controls whether or not you're tempted. Now, I love the second part of that. But deliver us from the evil one. In other words, if you let Him. Remember the Job story? God says to Job, what you been, I mean, to Satan, what you been up to? Satan says, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth. Peter tells us that He goes to and fro looking for who? Someone to devour. God points out Job and says, what about him? And Satan says the only reason he's like that is, you put this hedge of protection around him, you won't let me touch him. You take that away and you watch, he'll curse you to your face. Guess what happens? God says, here are the parameters, here's the limit of what you can do, you can't not touch him, you're free to do anything else. He kills all of his family, except for his wife. And he well, she was already on his team. <laughs> Think about it this way. You think about what she says to him. She tells him to curse God and die. Whose words are those? Uh, Wasn't that almost word for word what Satan was saying in the presence of God? He will curse you to your face. When she said curse God and die, he could have easily, just like Jesus to Peter, said, get behind me, Satan. I know where this is really coming from. Folks, let me just tell you, sometimes God will allow other people to be used as a part of the testing of your faith. And we get mad at that person. Your battle's not against flesh and blood, folks. Now guess, everybody will be held accountable by God for whether or not they're they're good people or bad people, if you will, in that sense, of whether or not they let Satan use them or not. But don't get mad at that person. You're going through a trial that's much bigger than I got a problem with my neighbor, or I got a problem with my child, or I got a problem with my spouse. Your problem is way bigger than that. There's something going on here. Your heavenly father is shaping you. He is molding you. He's trying to conform you into the image of his son. He's testing your faith. And this is a good thing. When trouble comes, you need to be willing to say, this is a good thing. But what we do is spend most of our time trying to avoid trouble, buying insurance to protect us from trouble. And as soon as trouble comes, we want to quickly make it disappear. Or pretend that it's not even there. You've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Well, let's go back and look at that passage in Proverbs. Go to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. Proverbs chapter 3. Look at verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. If God the Father led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested and tempted, will He not orchestrate your testing and tempting? That was a question. Yes. Yes. Let me show you another example of it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. As you're turning there, those of you who have raised children... Were there not times in your shaping of your children that you gave them something to do that they were sure was beyond their ability? Too hard. I can't do it. I'm teaching my son to mow the lawn. I have lots of reasons for doing that. One is he gets to mow the lawn and not me. But he'll tell me it's too hot. And I'll say, keep going. Why am I doing that? Because I'm mean? No. Uh, no, because I don't want to do it. No, I, it's because I'm shaping him and molding him and having him realize he can do it. One thing that's coming out of this is my son and I will get in the pool. Because I'll come work with him a little bit while he's out there. And we'll get in the pool afterwards. And he will have that sense of accomplishment. It feels good, doesn't it, AJ? Yeah. Lawn looks pretty nice, doesn't it, AJ? Yeah. Who did that? I did. You can do more than you thought you could, couldn't you? But at the time when I was saying keep going, and he said, "Can I take a break?" and I said, "No, finish it." He did not think that I had his best interest at heart. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses two through five. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert those four, these forty years to do what? To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Now we're going to deal with that in a second. Whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger. Did you catch that? He made you hungry, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God had a much bigger thing in mind than just giving you food that day with the manna. He was teaching you that you don't live just on food, on bread, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But look at what it says. God humbled you, He led you, He tested you. Have you ever looked at the route they took on a map? It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Why did God do it? He was testing them. He was humbling them. He was shaping them. But there's this phrase here, he did it in order to test you, in order to find out what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. Well, we've got to deal with this. Did God know or not know already whether they would follow His commands? Yes. Of course he knew. There's nothing that God doesn't know. Keep this in mind. The word omniscient means all-knowing. There's nothing God doesn't know. Remember how Peter said, "I'll die for you." And Peter says, "I mean, Jesus said, actually, let me give you the full detail. Before the rooster even crows tomorrow, you're gonna deny three times." There's nothing God doesn't already know. Psalm 139. Let me read it to you real quick. Psalm 139, verses one through four. Uh, if you want to write it down, look at it later. Or if you want to jump there and try to get there before I do. Uh, Psalm 139, verses one through four. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know know me you know when i sit and when i rise you perceive my thoughts from afar you discern my going out and my lying down you're familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue you know it completely o oh lord is there anything god doesn't know of course not. Then why does it say he humbled you in order to test you, to find out what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands? Who was the test for? Was it for It's for them. Listen, and it's a greater picture than that. It was to show them what he already knew about them and for those who would be watching. Why was Jesus tested? To find out whether or not Jesus would obey? Because of people's watching. I don't know if you know it or not, folks, but when Christians react to the same things that happen to the rest of the world and react in the same way as the rest of the world, and woe is me, and where is God, and how am I going to pay my bills, and all this stuff, God gets no glory. Because we act like He's dead. When we worry, and we're anxious, and we're upset, like everybody else, the people that are watching to find out whether we really have faith. Listen to 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He just talked about this wonderful salvation we have. He says, In this we greatly rejoice, though for now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do your good deeds before men that they may what? See your good works, see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. How in the world will they even think about God when they see your good works unless they realize that ain't happened by them? God had to have done that through them. And yet, folks, what do we do when trials come? Take it away, God. Take it away, take it away, take it away. We'll go back to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. Remember I told you to, we'd come back to chapter 2. I'm going to read it to you again, but now we're going to read it all the way through. Chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. It says, "...your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus." In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, because of His faithfulness, even to death, with everybody watching, He will be rewarded for eternity. And everyone will praise Him. And I want to say something to you now that you might not fully understand. Because of what has been given to you through your faith in Jesus Christ, you are... Already a child of God, co heirs with Jesus Christ, you're a child of the king. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought at this point. Don't say, I'm a child of God, I don't have to put up with this. So there's a lot of teaching out there that's like that, by the way. There's a movement out there in Christianity called Dominion Theology. Where they are teaching that because of who we are in Christ, we're more than conquerors through Him who gives us life. And we're going to reign over this. And I won't have any bad stuff happen to me because I'm a child of God. And I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to be rich. And there's plenty of preachers out there who can take scriptures and twist them. And if you remember earlier in our study in Hebrews, the Bible says that because of Jesus' obedience, everything has been laid at the feet of Jesus and everything has been put under Him. But then it said this, at this point though, we don't see everything subject to Jesus. In other words, even though everything is under His control, He has not taken full sovereign control yet, in the sense, like He will when the Millennial Kingdom comes, And that also means that even though you and I are children of God, and we are His children, we're righteous, we're holy, we're in the Beloved, we can talk about all the things we are, don't become more proud than Jesus was. And be willing to say, even though I'm His child, even though I'm more than a conqueror, even though greater is He who is in me than He is in the world, I'm willing, for the sake of Christ humble myself and let some of this stuff happen for the cause of Christ. I don't understand why he's doing it sometimes but I know this much, everything that happens to me from my father is good. And he'll use it for good. It may not feel good at the time but I'm going to hold on to who he is and I trust him. And I'm going to go forward in faith Even if it means I die. What did Job ultimately say? Even though he slay me, I ain't going nowhere, right? Yet will I trust him. Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's correct. And yet we're trying to have a life without suffering. I was meeting with a pastor today. He was sharing some of the problems that were going on in his church. And I said, you're right on schedule. And he goes, what? I go, you think you're going to pastor a church with no problems? You've got to get that idea out of your head. He goes, I just don't like conflict. And he's trying to come up with rules and policies to make it so that everybody will behave. I said, let me tell you something about rules. The, the rules fuel sin. The Bible says the power of sin is the law. What fuels sin is the law. You make more rules, you think people are going to all of a sudden play fair? That's not how it works. They'll just regroup and make an end run to figure out how we can get around that law. You know I can prove it to you? How many times have we all been pulled over by the police officer and tried to say, yeah, but the law really doesn't apply in this situation? (laughs) I had to just tell this pastor, I'm sorry, this might not be what you're looking to hear, but... You're right on schedule. Keep going. Point them to Jesus. That's what the Hebrew writer is doing here. So now the Hebrew writer has rebuked them for being weak in their faith. He's encouraged them with the fact that trials and hardships are actually for our best. Now he goes on to tell them to take seriously the trials because it is proof that we truly belong to God, that we're His children. That's what we just read about in Proverbs 3, verse 11. But like I told you earlier, there's a word here, translated punishes, in the uh, NIV that I don't like. It's a bad translation. A better translation of that word would be either discipline again, or chastisement, or shaping. I want to make sure something's really clear. You've heard me say this before, but I want to hammer it home. If God has to punish you after salvation for things you've done wrong, then He didn't fully punish Jesus. Do you understand? The Bible says he poured out all of his wrath on sin on Jesus Christ. He fully punished Jesus for all sin. Therefore, if you sin, God will discipline you. He may even rebuke you. He may shake you and chastise you, but he will not punish you. Some of your translations say scourgeth, don't they? Not a good translation of this word. I have wrestled with it. I've gone back to the original languages. The best translation we have of this word is it's a kind of a painful rebuke, but it is not punishment. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace though we've been trained by it. So in other words, he's saying take seriously now the trials because it is proof that you truly belong to God, that you're his child. The best way I can illustrate this to you is this. Knowing the heart of your father when he corrects you will help you handle the correction more appropriately. So what I want to do for the rest of our time in our study tonight is take you a little bit through a study of the heart of your father. See, it's easy for me to sit here and say, you need to know the heart of your Father. I want to show you scripturally the heart of your Father. And one of the best ways to do it is to walk you through some things that deal, scriptural passages that deal with dealing with sin and dealing with problems and dealing with trials, if you will. Go to Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 1. It says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him out. The spirit of meekness. The spirit of meekness or gently. Do you see that? Uh, let that sink in, folks. Why are we, when we see someone caught in a sin, why are we to go to them and to restore them gently? Okay, again, don't look at them though. No, you're still looking at people. Who are we looking at? We're trying to find the heart of the Father. That's how God deals with us. His first touch, His first advance, if you will, toward us, even if it's a rebuke. All a rebuke is is telling you you're wrong here, but we don't even like to hear we're wrong. Some of us, and I'm guilty of this, and I've I got a child over there I'm not going to point to, who has that same struggle. We don't like to admit we're wrong. Ever. And so when God even says you're wrong, what happens? Our pride gets in the way. Our, we, our flesh rears up. We don't even like to hear God say you're wrong. But even when God says you're wrong, He does it first, gently. He's correcting. Why? Because He wants to get us in the right. How many times when you're in school and the teacher might have come by and looked at your test while you're taking it and said, you might want to relook at number 12. Why did they do that? Because they saw you were getting it wrong and they wanted you to get it right. They were pointing out the fact that you were wrong, but they did it in what manner? In a gentle manner. They didn't sit back and say, oh, number 12's got it wrong. I can't wait to give them the X. You might have had teachers like that, but that's not who God is. Brothers, when you see someone in a fault, restore them gently because that's how God deals with us. Oh, go to Matthew 18. It talks about how if the people don't respond to His gentle nudges. Go to Matthew 18. You'll see some things. Look at verses 15 through 17. Says if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. By the way, according to Galatians six one, how am I to show you your fault? or you to show me my fault? Gently. Uh, but just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, that's when you bring it to the church. You see, the, the method of dealing with it is amped up you got a problem with your brother or they're sitting against you, go in gentle love between the two of you and bring it up. Show them. Rebuke, if you will. It's a discipline. It's a chastisement. It's a, it's a shaping. If they don't listen, bring some others along. And by the way, if you've ever heard me teach on this passage, I think the people you're supposed to bring along are people that have already proven to that brother or sister that they love them. You don't, bring, you don't go call the deacons at this point. Which unfortunately many churches do. No, you bring some others who have already proven that they love this person, so that that, when they come and you come and say, look, we need to deal with this, that person knows these people love me. But if they don't listen, what are you then to do? Take it to the next level. Folks, I want you to understand that God deals with us in this same way. When we start going astray, He will correct us, He will rebuke us, but He does it gently. You don't need that. You don't need to watch that. That's not for your best. I'm going to ask you to go in a different direction. He does it lovingly and gently. If we resist, He may have to amp it up a little. And if we keep resisting, He may have to really turn up the heat. But He is a loving Father, and the reason He's still working on you, and even though it's painful at the time, is because you're His child. And He cares for you. He's not a parent that doesn't care. So when you feel like God's even rebuking you and correcting you, what should be your response? He loves me. Praise Him. him. He loves me. what do we think? He's mad. He's displeased with me. He forgot me. Folks, in this world you're going to have trouble. Some of it's because we make stupid choices, but God will even use that for our best. Some of it because Satan has been allowed to do things in our life that we don't like. But our Father's orchestrating that and He's using it to make us where He wants us to be. And sometimes it's God just coming and saying, that's wrong. Are you willing to say, because I know His heart, I trust Him? I trust Him. Let me give you another cool example of the heart of the Father that God just showed me this uh, last two days. Go to Acts chapter 18. I've never seen this before. Paul has been on his missionary journeys, and Paul has been traveling all over the world. And as you know, wherever Paul goes, Acts chapter 18, we're going to start in verse uh, um, 9. But remember, remember in these journeys... What's been the reaction to Paul wherever he preaches? Opposition, right? People have been responding and churches are starting, but he's been facing a lot of opposition. One place he was stoned, left for dead, and dragged outside the city, and they left him there for dead. Another place he had to be hid in a basket and lit out a hole in the wall in the middle of the night to get out of the city because they were going to kill him. He's been imprisoned, as we talk about, and severely flogged. The opposition he's faced has been unbelievable. He's now in Corinth. And everywhere he goes, there have been people that come from the last town who now stir up the people in the next town to get him out of that town. And He's in Corinth and he's meeting opposition in Corinth. But look what happens in verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the Word of God. Now, if you, again, if you don't know the heart of the Father, you'll miss what has happened here. Did God have to tell him that it was going to be good for him and he's going to be alright for the next time, for the few days in the city? He didn't have to. And I can guarantee you with all that Paul had been through, he probably went to sleep with one eye open because most likely there's going to be a knock at the door and a bunch of people with torches and clubs wanting to haul him out of town or take him to the magistrates. But God in His mercy and love comes to Paul and says, let me give you a little preview of what's going to happen here in Corinth. They're not going to harm you. They won't attack you. You keep preaching you don't be silent. I've got people in this city, and you're going to be okay. Rest in me. Rest in me. But what a loving thing. What a, what a, what a thoughtful thought of God to come and tell Paul, you can sleep with both eyes closed in this city. You don't have to worry. Now, that's important, because if you keep reading, what happens while he's in Corinth is, all of a sudden the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the court. What happens if you don't know the story? The proconsul says, "Why are you even bringing this to me? This is my responsibility. Get out of here!" And the court case was totally dismissed. And the Jews were so mad they beat up one of their own guys. They wanted to beat somebody up, and it was going to be Paul, but God wouldn't let that happen. So they beat up Sosthenes instead. Wouldn't it have been what an awesome thing to know that when Paul was standing before the proconsul Gallio, God had already told him, "You won't be harmed. You won't be attacked." In this city. And so he could stand there at peace. And he never even had to defend himself. Folks, your God loves you. Does it feel like He loves you all the time? No. But we need to be people who understand the heart of the Father. And He's going to cause all things to work for good. And He's going to shape us. What do we need to do? We need to humble ourselves before Him. And trust His heart even though we don't see what He's doing. If you're resistant to His loving correction, He'll increase His intensity of the discipline. And oh, by the way, He has the power to use whatever He chooses. Let me just give you a heads up. You've heard me say it before, I'm going to say it again. The Bible says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You're going to be humbled either way. I say you choose to humble yourself. Don't let God do it. But you don't need to see that side of Him If you humble yourself and stay pliable and supple, we're submissive to whatever He does, even when He's putting you through trials. Count it all joy, my brothers and my sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because God's orchestrating this and He's making you better through them. Stop saying, take it away. Stop saying, I don't want to do this. And humble yourself and say, Lord, you know my desire. If you want to remove it, that's good with me. You know I don't want to do this, but ultimately everything you do toward me is best, because everything that comes to me now on this side of the cross is from your hand of love, and I trust you. I'm going to read to you a very familiar passage in closing tonight, Matthew chapter 28, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. I don't want you to turn there. I want you just to listen. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Please just listen and understand. This is God speaking. Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will there be a yoke? Yes. Will there be a burden? Yes. But the only times those yokes will become heavy instead of light are when you resist them. My great-grandmother lived to be 102. You've heard me talk about her a time or two. When she was in her 80s, she was in a horrific car crash in the middle of a four or six-lane highway in the icy roads in winter up in Connecticut. And... uh, their car was just demolished and it spun around in the middle and they sat there as the cars continued to race by. And she had both of her legs broken as she sat there in the back seat. And they couldn't get out. They didn't know what to do. This was prior to cell phones. So they decided to hold hands and to pray. When it came time for my great-grandmother's prayer, this is what she prayed. I am your child through Jesus Christ. Do with me as you will. Wow! By the way, she was 85 at the time, lived to be 102. (laughs) Folks, I don't know what's coming in the days to come. I pray a rapture's coming soon. I'm looking for it. But, in this world, God is going to use trials to shape us. Things we don't like. Things we wish wouldn't have happened. May your first response be, my Father knows. And this is for my best. I want to look to Him and respond appropriately. Let me pray for us. Father, there's always so much as we just take just a few verses in Your Word here. As we compare it to the whole of Scripture and all the things that are there and how it all ties together. Father, it's kind of amazing to us in this day of patting each other on the back. That the Hebrew writer would say, you haven't even resisted yet to the shedding of your blood. And actually this is a good thing that you're going through the confiscation of your property and some people being put in prison. Because deep down, ultimately behind it, your father is at work and he's showing you that you're his child and he loves those that he shapes. Father, may we get out of our minds the fact that you may punish us. You don't punish. You shape. You mold. You put us through things that we think are too hard for us, but ultimately you know that's for our best. And so Father, may we become men and women who truly do consider it joy. Pure joy when we face trials. I know that sounds crazy and it's really hard, especially in this soft kind of Christianity we live in here in America. But Father, may it be rooted, may our response be rooted in the fact that we understand Your heart. And if we don't, may we spend time in Your Word, not reading Your Word to find out the rules, but to come to know who You really are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.